theyeshiva.net. We're going to start today a new mimer, but it's not really a new mimer, as I'll explain in a moment. Parsha Shlach in Lakuta Teira, Daf Lamad Zion, Omid Beis, Lamad Zion, Column Two, or Page Seventy Three. By Yomer Al Kol Adaz Bnei Yisrael Leimer, Toivar It's Moid Moid. The previous Maimer Shlach Lecha Noshim that we learned in the last few days is the first Maimer of the Balatanya Parsha Shlach. The Maimer was said in the year Tovkuf Samach Zion, eighteen o seven in the secular calendar, Tovkov Samach Zayin in the Jewish calendar. Very often the Balatanya would say a mimer, and in the next few days, or the next Shabbos, he would say what was called a beer, an explanation for the mimer. In that beer, he would take various ideas of the first mimer and develop them, elaborate on them, explain them more, sometimes very often explain the sources of the idea in Kabbalah and in Medrash and in various forum. So often he would say a Maimon, he would just bring ideas, but in the beer he would reference and cross-reference and so to speak explain the methodology of how he got to this point and what the sources are, whether it's in Zoyar or in Kisvei Harizal or in Sifri Chikir or in Sifri Rambam or whatever it is, and show the evolution of the ideas. In other words, the beer was basically going deeper into the concepts and into the source of the concepts. Sometimes the beer was said just for a few individuals, for a few private people, not for the whole oilam. Sometimes the beer was said in the middle of the week, so it was already a very select oilam, it wasn't the regular oilam. Sometimes the beer was said next Shabbos. Usually, when it says beer, there's a mime, and then right after that it says beer, and then it continues. The beer is usually longer than the first mime. Here, however, it has a new Dibra Maschil. It starts off with a new Pasuk, not the Pasuk Shlach But really, it's a beer, you could see immediately that it was a beer, an explanation that was said on this mime. So the concepts in this mime are now elaborated in more detail and more depth in this mime. So the truth is that when you read the mime, it seems like a beer. It looks like a beer. But then years later, when a lot of ma- new manuscripts started to come out, so uh, so one of the Hanachas, one of the people who wrote this Maimer, I told you the Alter Rebbe had different people who would write his Maimarim. The first was his brother. He had a brother, the Maharil, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, a younger brother who would write all of his maimarim. Most of the maimarim of Torah and Lakuta Torah were written by his brother. The Alter Rebbe would speak in Yiddish. His brother would write the maimarim in Lashon Kodesh. More or less, he tried to remain loyal to what his brother said. The next was his son, the Mittler Rebbe, Reb Doiv Ber, would also write. Then there was another son, Reb Moshe, who would also write. Then his grandson, the Tzamach Tzaddik, when he came of age, he also started to write. Besides that, there were chassidim who would write. There was a Yidra Pinchas Reizes who would also write. And sometimes other people. So sometimes you have my modem that were written by five different people. By his brother. Say my His brother wrote. His son wrote. Another son wrote. It's a Machzadik wrote. And a Pinchas wrote. So you have the same Maimer in five versions. Which is very fascinating. Because you could see they're all saying the same thing. But everybody's saying it differently. 
Alter Rebbe once said, as the Maharil, my brother, Er schreibt was ich He writes what I say. He says, Betel, my son, the Mittler Rebbe, Reb Doiv Ber, Er schreibt was ich mein. He doesn't write what I say. He writes what I want to say. What I meant to say. What I what, what my thoughts are. He says, Mendel, the Tzamech Tzedek, his grandson, Er schreibt was ich und was ich mein. He writes what I said and what I mean. And then they had Repinchas, Repinchas Reises. His thing was known that he was very medayik in Oisius Sarav. He was extremely precise in writing exactly as the Alter Rebbe said it, exactly. To the point that there are times that he misses a line because the Alter Rebbe, in the middle of Chassidus, would often go into such a dveikas, he would go into such an ecstasy, very often. He would start rolling on the ground. And he was rolling on the ground, he would continue the mimer, literally rolling on the ground. And the uh, base medrash was made of concrete walls, cement walls, and he would bang his head hard, and he would start bleeding. So they cushioned all the walls in the base medrash, so that when the balatanya would roll, he wouldn't hurt himself. And they say the pinchas Reises used to roll after. Al-Terebis, he shouldn't miss any words, especially when he was turning. So sometimes he'll literally skip a line, and you know that here there was a tremendous dvekas of the Al-Terebis, and he pushed missed words because he was rolling, you couldn't hear things. So he was very medayik in Oisi Saraf. So you have different, the same maimah could be written by one person, two people, three people, four, especially the later years when there were more writers because it's a machzadik grew older and there were more chassidim and so forth. Today they have Torah, look at the Torah, and today already is printed, just the last years they printed a whole set called Maimori Admur Hazakim, the discourses of the Alter Rebbe, which is a red set. I think they have some of it upstairs, which is probably... Uh, between 25 and 35 books over the years, all the years. So there you have the same Hanachas, which means the same Hanachas, written by other people. And they printed all versions, because every version always, there's something that you won't have in another version. So this Maimer here is in Lakut Torah, but the Mittler Rebbe also wrote it. But in his headline, he put, out, he put in beer. He put in that it was a beer, it's an explanation to be for so the suspicion is authenticated that Alter Rebbe said it as a beer. The same year, probably a few days later. Nobody wrote in the additional. They always wrote in Lashon Kaidush. Oh, so some manuscripts he reviewed, many he didn't. Some he reviewed and cracked it, some he did, many he did not. The Maharil. Most of Lakuta Torah and Torah was written by his brother. Rabbi Huda Leib, who would consistently, every Mitzvah Shabbos, Mitzvah Yom Tif, or middle of the week, he would always write to my mother. Shulchan Aruch was written himself, word for word, and the Tanya also. The Tanya and Shulchan Aruch were written word for word by the Alter Rebbe himself, and all of his letters and his Shal Satchuvus that he has. But, uh, but the Maimara mostly, besides there's a few things he wrote himself, most of them were written by others. So what's happening now is, this is what he said, and Let's not push it. <laughs> he said that about the Mittler Rebbe, not about me. So what are you doing? <laughs> That's a good question. That I ask myself every day. <laughs> the Lukudetari was printed in Tafresh Ches. Tafresh Ches is 1848. So did they find material... Yeah, of course. That's what I'm saying. The last years, a tremendous amount of material was found. Well, tremendous amount. But what happened was the, the, the communists confiscated 
from the Lubavitcher Rebbe's most of their books and many of their manuscripts. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, had a library with all of the manuscripts of his father and grandfather and great grandfather and great grandfather from his from the Yerusha. But it was confiscated. And then it was confiscated, the communists confiscated from his son, the Rayats. What happened was, after the war, after the Holocaust, um, things just remained confiscated. But in the later years, they started to allow things to get returned. So in the late 1970s, there was a huge treasure in Warsaw that came to New York, that came to the Rebbe, huge. And from that, a tremendous amount was printed. And uh, there were different stages that different manuscripts would come out from different situations, different people. Either, you know, Sakhrim merchants, or business people who got it, or other family members, or it was just from a lot of different sources things came out. So then a lot more was published. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. A lot were also burnt in fires. Fires then were devastating, and a lot was burned. More, uh, more than half of Shulchan Aruch Harav is extinct from a fire. All the original manuscripts of Tanya were destroyed in fire. Huh? Sefer Shul Tzadikim was completely burnt, yeah. Okay, so let's begin the second Maima, which is really a beard on the first. So basically, we have here the Psukim where Yeshua and Kalev respond to the Miraglim. The Miraglim are saying that what? That there's no way we can go into Eretz Yisrael because it will spell disaster and catastrophe. And Yeshua and Kalev say, no. Toivar it's maid maid. The land is good, very, very good. If Hashem wants us, He'll bring us to this land. And He'll give it to us. Eretz, a land that shares of us, Chalavud Bash. Why do they say Toivar it's maid maid twice? Very good, very, very good. And why do they add here? that he's going to give it to us, the land that flows with milk and honey. Why is that relevant here in the counter-argument to the sparse? So for this we have to introduce and explain the shayrish, the root of the action of the meraglum lamayla. Lamayla means above, before this story. This is already the response of Yehoshua and Kalev, but before this is the story itself. To understand why they didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael, not only that, Viginuai said they embarrassed it, they disgraced it. And he says again the word shoyrish. As I told you once, when it says the word shoyrish, a root is invisible. When you look at a tree, you don't see the roots. But the tree lives from the roots. Whenever you see a story, you could look at the story, and you could look at the shoyrish of the story. The shoyrish of the story means the invisible roots of the story. Sometimes you could see a story and explain the story, but without the roots. And when you don't have the roots of the story, you're missing really the essence of the story. The story of the Miraglim has been explained by Mepharshim for many, many, many generations. What he wants to do in this Mayama is to explain the Shoyrish Maisa Miraglim. What is the underlying root, the core, the inv- which is often invisible. Because when you read the Chumash, you can often miss this point. It's not easily seen. And that's the underlying story of the Miraglim. 
Hini mivor beitzchayim. The Rizal says in beitzchayim the shayla shameraglim uvchinas elam amachshava nikrileya. He says the source of the miraglim they came from the world of thought, which is the world of leya. They came from the generation of the desert. That generation is called in Medrash Dardeya, the generation of knowledge, the generation of perception. And therefore they didn't want to humble themselves to go into the Holy Land, because the land comes from the world of speech, which is called Rachel. And they came from the world of thought. So the Arizal teaches us that the Miraglim came from the Pchina of Leah. And Eretz Yisrael is connected to Rachel. This goes back to the two sisters of Leah and Rachel. Yaakov wanted to marry Rachel, but he ended up marrying Leah, and then he married Rachel. Leah and Rachel represent two forces. Leah represents the world of thought, and Rachel represents the world of speech. The Miraglim did not want to go down from Leah to Rachel. Leah is higher than Rachel. Leah is deeper than Rachel. Just like thoughts are higher than words and deeper than words. Words come from thoughts. Thoughts precedes words. The Miraglim came from the world of Leah, the world of Machshava. Rachel is the world of Eretz Yisrael, the world of Dibur. They did not want to go down from the world of Leah into the world of Rachel. That's what the Chaim says. The question is, what does this mean? What does it mean they came from Leah? What does it mean Leah is Machshava? What does it mean Eretz Yisrael is Rachel, which is Dibur? And they didn't want to go into it. To understand the explanation of these cryptic, Kabbalistic words of Eitzchayim. It's known that the main concept, the main objective to enter into Eretz Yisrael, the main mitzvah is, the expression of the Pasuk is, lasses ba'aretz, to do in the land. Meaning, the mitzvahs that are going to be done, the Torah and the mitzvahs to be observed there, because there's many mitzvahs that for this, for them you need Eretz Yisrael. The building of the Beis HaMikdash, and many similar things, as he brought in the previous Maiser, all the mitzvahs of Karbonas that are dependent on the Beis HaMikdash. All the mitzvahs hatluyas ba'aretz that are dependent on the agriculture, the soil of Eretz Yisrael, like bikurim, like trumas, like maisras, like shmita, like yovel, all these different matnas kohuna, all these mitzvahs depend on Eretz Yisrael. Is it a, a secondary reason also to do the mitzvahs that we have, like filling also to do in Eretz Yisrael? Well, automatically, the mitzvah of tefillin is done in a more elevated way in Eretz Yisrael. It's not dependent on Eretz Yisrael. Right. Tefillin we could do outside. Some mitzvahs are exclusively dependent on Eretz right. Yisrael. But as a result of that, even all the mitzvahs are in a different state when they're done in Eretz Yisrael. There's even a famous Ramban. The Ramban says in Krishna, it says, V'avadatem meheira me'alaretz ha'toiva sh'ashem noisim l'chem. So the Ramban says that the main kiyam of mitzvahs is only in Eretz Yisrael. The reason you're given mitzvahs in exile is that when you come back to Eretz Yisrael, you should be used to it. So the purpose of mitzvahs in Chutz Laaretz is only to get used to doing them in Eretz Yisrael. The Ramban brings from a medrash, that in Chutz Laaretz you do the mitzvahs only as a simon, as practice for the real thing. 
It's like chinuch. It's like educating a child. So all mitzvahs in chutzlaret is basically educating a child. When he becomes by mitzvah, he should be able to do the mitzvah, so to speak, for real. That's what the Ramban explains in Krishna. That's how far it goes. For inyan, who the inyan in this is kihine ikar atayda va mitzvah sulahavdu ben atayda ben atame. The main objective of Torah mitzvahs is to separate between tahrits and expression in shmini lahavdil to separate to distinguish between the pure and the impure. The hainu is birudim. The main objective of Torah mitzvahs is birudim. Birudim comes from the word birudim, which means to select, to decipher, to choose. From the word levarer, because whenever there's a mixture, you have to choose. If there's no mixture, you don't have to choose. Things are mixed, and you always have to distinguish. That's the objective of all Torah mitzvahs. All of life is about choices. At every moment, a person is being mevari birurim. Physically, emotionally, verbally, spiritually. In life, there's, everything is blended. There's mixture. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're mixed up. We're mixed up between happiness and depression. Anybody? Between certainty... Between certainty and uncertainty between certainty and uncertainty, between happiness and sadness, between being in a direction, directionless, being high and low, moral, immoral, selfless, selfish, right? Positive, negative, pessimistic, optimistic, confident or insecure. Huh? Realistic or non-realistic, etc., etc. Everything is mixed up. Everything constantly. The objective of Torah mitzvahs is to live a world, live a life where you're always being mevarebirudim. You're always being mavdil. This belongs to me. This doesn't belong to me. This I want to keep. This I don't want to keep. This is healthy. This is toxicity. This is my issue. This is your issue. V'chuli v'chuli, and that's a big one. <laughs> this is my issue. This is your issue. Huh? Selections, yeah. To be able to select. And in many ways, identifying is even more important than selecting. To be able to identify that there has to be a birur here. Even before I do the birur, just to be able to say, this needs birur, that itself is extremely powerful and extremely important. Because if not, what happens is the person just gets swallowed up in a process or in an experience or in an emotion, and there's nothing left. The ability to be able to be mevara, to be able to see things from a bird's eye view, and to be able to see not only the trees, but the forest. And therefore you say, this tree belongs here, this tree belongs here. This is the beginning of the forest, this is the end of the forest. That ability is the essence of Torah and Why is there such a mixture? As a result of the breaking. The Malkin, Kadmoyin, the Toyu. The primordial kings of Olam HaToyu, which is an expression of all the Koiches of Elikus and Toyu, are called the early, the primordial, the Malkin, Kadmoyim of Toyu. Enumerated in Parshish Vayishlach. Eila HaMelochim HaShemolchu Beretz Edoim Lifnoi Meloch Malach Lebnei. So like we learned at length in Beshalach, the Maimah Batlachem Mishnah. Kiyadu Eveh Noflu, as a result of that breaking Noflu, Rapach Nitzutz in the Toyu. He mentions many times, 288 sparks of Olam fell. What do we mean fell? Fell doesn't mean physically. Fell means they're not recognizable. They enclose themselves in a shell that's called in Kabbalah, based on the Pesach in Yecheskel, the first Pesach, 
Klipas noiga. Noiga means translucent. Noiga means shining. It's a shell that's translucent. So there's a mixture, a taruvis of toiv and ra. Toiv and ra doesn't only mean good and evil. Toiv and ra, people make a mistake. They always translate in Lakuta Toira and Tanya and all these svarab toiv, good, ra, evil. It's very hard to learn Tanya or any svarab, that's how you translate ra. Toiv means wholesome, ra means broken. And Tanya he brings from Kahelas and Zayar. That all the might, Shlomo Melech says in Ecclesiastes, in Kohelis, in Ecclesiastes, all the deeds that are done under the sun are hevel, vanity, uru'us ruach. Ru'us ruach means of broken ruach. The word ra, like in Babakama, you have koisel, ra'uah. You remember Perik HaKoynes, right? A weak wall. Ra'uah means broken. It's, uh, it's, it's not wholesome. Shvach, shvach, yeah. Ra means anything that's broken. What do we mean it's broken? Huh? Shokultzich, yeah. It's not sturdy. Anything that's broken, what do we mean it's broken? Anything that is detached from its own source. When a person is not connected to their own organic roots, they're in a state of Ra. Now, there's levels of how broken a person is. That's true. How splintered you are. How disassociated you are from yourself. But that is a definition of Ra. definition of Ra doesn't mean... You're an evil person. Evil, you may not be an evil but you may be a broken person. A broken person means a person who's disconnected. That's what broken is. A shard, it's broken, it's disconnected from its source. Whenever you're disconnected from your source, that's a state of Ra. As a result of the nefila, what's nefila? That's what nefila means. Nefila means you fall. Where do you fall? You fall into a place that doesn't belong to you. person falls off something. They fall in off something. They belong somewhere, but they fall away from it. person is a noifel, and they don't recognize themselves anymore. They look in the mirror, it's not the same person who was there. They may recognize themselves physically, but they don't recognize who they really are. And they don't have a way of going back to who they are. And that's where great, great uh, sadness comes from. It's the pain of being disconnected. Nefila, the first nefila is the shvira of Olam Shvira means broken, literally. And nefila means you fall down. That in the sense that the nitzots can't be recognized anymore. And because it can't be recognized anymore, like in Torah Erva Yeshev, we learned it a few weeks ago, in the Sunday Baloyzka, about the Oisius. He brings a marshal. You have a word, Baruch. Beiz, Reish, Vav, Chav. means blessed. What happens if you splinter the word into four? So now you have a flying base, a flying rage. You take a base. You can't see in the base that it's part of a bracha. All you see in the base is a base that's called shvira. Why? Because you don't see it for what it really is. Really, it's part of a word baruch, but you don't see it as part of a puzzle. You just see it as an isolated base. So when you see that, you, you said that happens also to a person himself or herself. He sees himself or herself in a splintered way. That's called nefila. The whole mixture of toiv and ra in the world happens from that shvira of Olam So that there's nitzutzes of elikus, but they don't recognize themselves anymore. So there's a mixture between toiv and ra, because the toiv becomes, it morphs into a state of brokenness, and that is basically what ra is. Vehin tzrichim aliyah, they need to be elevated. The first thing is you have to refine them, select them, and separate them from the ra that's connected to them. 
and then the toif could go back to its source. As long as it's connected to things that are alien to itself, its toif can't be revealed. Take a broken person, a broken person, looking to fill himself up and to become complete, he connects himself to different things. Those things may takabira. They're beyond broken. And now he becomes even more broken as a result. So the first thing is he has to disassociate from that ra in order for him to be able to go back to himself. This is the structure of all mitzvahs. Mitzvahs essay, mitzvahs loisisa. Aideha loisisa nifrida toiv minara. The element of loisasa in Judaism, which is what you don't do, is basically disengaging. This is not for me. It's borders. This I don't do. This I don't eat. This I don't touch. This I don't look at. That's all. What I don't do, you disengage. You create borders. And now there's mitzvah sesim. Mitzvah sesim is what I do do. What I actively engage in, which is aliyah satoiv lamayla. It's bringing the toiv back to its source. The hainu al derech he takes an esik to shake it, or he takes wool from a sheep, and he turns it into tzitzis. He makes a talus kot, no talus god. Why he brings the mitzvah of tzitzis fashteich, because it's parsha shlach. Why he brings the mitzvah of esik, basically. The esrig and the wool are both called Klippos Neige. What is Klippos Neige? Shatoiv Mu'ud of Shambara. An esrig is a physical re- fruit. Semer is a physical phenomenon. Like every physical reality, there's toiv and there's ra. What says this toiv and there's ra? Godliness is concealed there. It's broken in the sense you don't see in the wool its divine energy. You don't see in a citrus or in a willow its divine energy. What you see is a physical fruit, but really there's toiv over there. Really it's a lakos. But this is a lakus melubash in klipas noiga in a shell that's translucent. Why do we call it noiga? Because sometimes a lakus is so concealed you can't do anything with it. A shtik chaza you can't do anything with it. An esrig wool you could do a lot with it. It's like money. It's klipas noiga. When he does a mitzvah with this wool or with this esrig, so he introduces, he brings forth into it the hashra, the dwelling. Of the infinite light, the nichlal hatoyv, the nitzutzes, the toyish and eslabish, but toyich esrig vatzemla adi ashvira, but oirin sofa nimshach adi amitzvah zayis. The toyv of the sparks of olam hatoyu, which got enclosed in the esrig and in the wool through the breaking of the vessels, and therefore the nitzutzes came into this physical phenomenon. Now I do a mitzvah with this tzitzes. What do I do? There's an ein soif infinity that comes out through this mitzvah, and all the sparks in the tzitzis, in the wool, go back to their source. The Rai is the clipper, the helen, the concealment. Ah. The Rai is the sense of brokenness, that it's not divine. It's detached from Hashem. That's why I said Ra means broken, detached, disengaged. You understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it because we don't see it? Because it's concealed? Yeah, the godliness is concealed, and that allows for a person to do different things with wool. You can make different types of garments from wool, right? 
what you could do with an esrik? You could throw it in somebody's face <laughs> and black and blue and black. I mean, yeah. There's an esrik of Arla, for example. Yeah, that's Asr. Esrik of Arla, the first three the first three years would be taka Asr. Taka can't be makayim mitzvah esrik there. Everything in the world is called klipas noiga. Klipas noiga means it's neutral. It's neutral. It could be used in one way. It could be used another way. It could be used and then the sparks of God are revealed in it. Or, no, you surrender to the Ra, which means the outer shell that eclipses its true purpose, its true meaning, its true essence. And then you use it contrary to what it's really made for, to its true design and its true purpose. That's what we mean by Ra. Sometimes... It could be lowered yet even more and be used for atmamishra. Depends on the situation. Whether it's when you're dealing with food, you're dealing with money, you're dealing with a cup of coffee, you're dealing with an iPhone, you're dealing with a mic, you're dealing with a table. Any issue in the world, technology, science, clothes, business, every phenomenon in the world, in the physical world, is divine. It's all divine. It's all lives from of godliness, from divine sparks. But because of the Shvira Sakalim, the Beis and the Resh are disconnected. You don't see in the world the Einoid Malvade, the oneness of it. So one could use the internet in a way that Torah spreads to the whole world, right? You have there a woman from Pakistan learning Lakuta uh, Torah in the morning. That's how you could use the internet. And you could also use the internet in very different ways, which I don't have to be Ma'irechan, right? It could become a source of addiction, of destruction, of, uh, of laziness, of boredom, of immorality, of promiscuity. The same internet, the same technology. The same technology. Or you could use it for your Harvatsa Satayra, for your Futsa by Nasacha What's the choice? This is a person's choice. Anything you eat, everything in the world. Take science, for example, yeah? Science, if you study science correctly, it brings out the harmony of the world. It brings out the harmony of Hashem. It brings out Godless Habayre. But some people could study science and it does the exact opposite. Yeah, very good. Why? Because it's a shell. Whenever there's a shell, you have to be able to pierce through the shell. If there's no shell, you don't have to pierce through it. Whenever there's a clipper, whenever there's a clipper, but it's noiga. Noiga means it shines. You could get through the shell. It's not so thick that you can't penetrate. You could penetrate, but you have to be able to penetrate. And in life, you always have to be able to do that. That's avoidus sabirurim, to be able to penetrate and see the toiv within. Right? Even when you're, let's say, educating a child. Whenever you're educating a child, there's the toiv and there's the ra. What do you mean there's toiv and there's the ra? This behavior that is very problematic. This behavior that is challenging. So you could just dismiss the child, or you have to look a little deeper. You have to be able to see what is behind it, and how do you help the child do better in himself? Say, this is, belongs to me, this doesn't belong to me. This I could dismiss. This I don't want to dismiss. This I embrace. This I reject. That's the whole avoid of Chinuch. It's also avoid of to be able to help people differentiate between themselves what they really want, what they don't want, who they really are, who they're not. Yeah? People get angry very fast. People have bad temperaments. To be able to let them see themselves in a way that they don't have to define themselves by it. That is Avaidus Abiruna. And that's so in the mitzvah he says, you take the asterisk, you take the tzemer, and the nitsutsas go back to their source through the mitzvah. Is it possible to 
You're saying that when you shake the acid, it actually looks like bitter, like you're shaking it, like that. Okay, and the tzitzis also. You, uh, you kiss. Huh? Again, what? What does it mean? What? Seeing yourself without finding yourself. Finding yourself? Defining yourself. Zog in Yiddish. No, no, I was saying that a person sometimes sees certain things in themselves and that defines them. That becomes who they are in their eyes. So they need the Avodah Sabirurim to be able to be mafrit, to be able to be mvarim. And say, yeah, this is an emotion, this is an experience, but it's not everything. In other words, I can have these emotions, I can feel these emotions, I'm fine with feeling these emotions. They won't destroy me. And um, I don't have to be afraid of them. I don't have to be afraid of them because they don't tell the whole story about me. If you believe that every thought or every emotion you have is all there is to you, then you have to be very afraid of it. You know what I mean? Because there's nothing else to me. So I have to make believe they don't exist, because if they do exist, then I'm really bad off. So I have to invest tremendous energy in denying their existence. And because that's false, so whenever you expend energy on something that's false, it comes back to bite you. Because... You're wasting your time and you're wasting your energy and you're using it for something that's not true. So it's going to come back to haunt you and it feels very bad. So whenever somebody thinks that their thoughts or emotions is everything that there is about them, so they have to repress them and crush them because they don't want to feel like this about themselves. So what happens is they're expending all their energy to dismiss something that really is there, but they make believe it's not, so it becomes very painful. When a person can appreciate the fact that I have thoughts, I have emotions, I have experiences. Some of them are not uh, very gishmak. They could be very ugly or they could be very painful. But it doesn't define all of me. It doesn't define my essence. It doesn't have to control me. It doesn't tell the whole story. It's part of my story. So then you could actually let it be because you put it in context. By putting it in context of what it is, by doing Avaidah Sabirurim, you don't have to spend extra energy to mutilate it and deny it and crush it and destroy it, making believe it doesn't exist when it really does exist. You rather can give it its place and understand that that's part of your journey. That's part of your avoida. That's part of your destiny. It doesn't turn you into a horrible, evil, hopeless, miyuishdika, depressed, and despaired person. So, the, so paradoxically, the fact that you realize that it's not you... You, it's not all you, it's not the whole you, you can let it dance around. You can let it be without feeling horrible about it, without judging yourself and turning yourself into a meshugana, or judging it. Because you know it doesn't have to control you, it's fine. That's what I meant. Verstehst?
So let's finish here. So he says, But for this, you first need to separate it from the Ra, so it should become a vessel for the Einsoif. So when you do the Mitzvah, the Einsoif could dwell in the Esrig or the wall, and the Nitzvah could become included in the Elikos. But for this, you have to disengage it from the Ra. This explains the concept of diktuke mitzvahs, the meticulousness in mitzvahs. For example, you learn hilchis esrig, liyas esrig, kach v'kach dafk. The halacha tells you the esrig has to be like this or like this. And there's people who stand with uh, magnifying, magnifying glasses for seven, eight hours, searching for the esrig. I was in an esrig store. Searching for the esrig, searching for the blemish. <laughs> Very right. good. So I was in an Essex store uh, last year, two years ago, before Sukkot, and I was choosing an Essex. So there was this guy, apparently, who was there from uh, Alois HaShachar. I came at night from Alois HaShachar till the night, and he was looking and looking and looking. It was a big store, there was a big selection. So finally, the owner, apparently, was a little exasperated or exhausted. So he says, it's a funny thing. How long did it take you to choose your wife? You're choosing an Essex. How many hours did you spend with your kala before you got engaged? How long did it take? He said, 30 minutes. So he says, wow, your esrig is spending more time on finding the right esrig than finding the right wife. Why is it? What's more important? Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to speak about, I'm not going to discuss his answer now. But... But it's an interesting thing. Separate few shiurim. It's an interesting thing, these diktuke mitzvahs. Yeah. So he says, If one of the, the details in the essay that the halacha prescribes is missing, it's not good. Now you might say it's a little bit of a funny thing. God, this infinite God, yeah, what's going to happen? If you put a needle in the esrig, you make a blemish in the esrig, or a piece is missing, or whatever, he looks at the esrig and says, you know what? This is really giving me a miserable sukkus. What is the tfisis makim? What is the significance of all the diktuke mitzvahs? One strand is missing, is disqualified. So now think about it. You ever saw a picture of planet Earth from outer space? You know what it looks like? You ever play Chinese checkers? What do they call it? Chinese checkers? Huh? The marbles, yeah? Our planet is smaller than a marble from outer space. From the perspective of infinity, it's not even a marble. Like maybe, maybe a speck, a grain of sand, maybe. Right? So we take our grain of sand very seriously, especially if there's a fight over real estate. But from the perspective of outer space, it's a grain of sand. In this grain of sand, yeah? In this grain of sand, which we're calling our planet... Yeah, you have billions and billions of people. Never mind billions and billions of insects and animals and mammals and fish and planets and trees and bushes and sand and most of it is water. And then you have one human being is not even a speck of dust somewhere in this part. And this human being puts on tzitzis, and one of the tzitzis is missing a strand. So the infinite God is like whoa, whoa, whoa. This is really not good. 
This is not good. Right? You ate Chol and Shabbos afternoon. You want to eat pizza Mitzvah Shabbos. You waited five hours and 59 minutes. One minute, he ate pizza. Agavalt. Proportion. He says, what's the Havon of all these Diktuke Mitzvahs? So he says, the Hainu, the Pshat is, She'enem Pchines Keli Lashra Salakos. Before there should be Hashra Salakos in something, Elakos should be able to dwell in something, the Keli has to be suitable. The Keli has to be clean, has to be Tsugapast. Just like if a person enters into a session with anger, or poisonous feelings, or toxicity, they're blemished, and they can't open themselves up to a certain truth. They just can't be there. So any physical thing, in order to do the mitzvah's essay, you first have to be mafred, the toy from the rat, to make it a keli for the Ein That's what the diktuki mitzvahs are. Well, here it's even in Asay Toiv. It's the Sur Meira within Asay Toiv. I'll call upon him moving Miza. Sheikira Toiva Mitzvah Sulavara Hatoiv Menarash and the Salavai de Ashvida, La Fide Mera La Seisel Shash. The Nikud is that the main objective of Toiva Mitzvah is to elevate, to, to refine the Toiv from the Ra because of the mixture through the breaking, to separate it from the Ra and bring it back up to its source. That's the Nikud. But he finishes this Perik, Achbeemis Ainza Movan. But really, this is all not understood. How can a person really cause the dwelling of infinity through doing a mitzvah? What shaykhs, what connection is there between him and godliness that he does an act, he puts on tefillin, or he puts on tzitzis, and you say as a result of this, the light of infinity came into this hide of the animal, or this wool of the sheep, or this body of the hand, or this mouth that's speaking, or whatever, or this esoric, or this money that he's giving for tzedakah. A person does it, and through this, he brings in, he reveals, and brings out the Ein Saif in it, and all the nitzutzis are oil l'sharsha, Oy, or even or you say that by as a result of him being surmeira, he actually has the ability to do a whole avodas and to separate all the nitzutzes from the ra. Where is does this person? Where does a person? What's the mechanism to understand that a human being living here does this mitzvah and he can accomplish such a thing, whether in the negative of surmeira and the positive of asaytay? You want to, uh, somebody want the opposite? You? The opposite. Right. Right. We'll continue tomorrow. Okay, Perik Base, page seventy-four. The whole Indian will be understood. Based on what it says in Zoyar, which was of course what he mentioned in the first Maimon, but here it's going to be explained at great length. The Zoya says in Parshas Truma, Kadaskafi Sitra Achir is Talaki Karad the Kuchabricha Bukhulu Almin. When Sitra Achir, when the other side, the side of which is antithetical to holiness, is subdued, 
the glory of Kuchabrichu, the glory of Hashem, extends throughout all of the worlds. Nistalik literally means the parts, like Nistalik, Siluk. But here, Nistalik doesn't mean it goes away. Nistalik means it extends, it spreads, it travels, just like Nistalkos doesn't mean a person really goes away completely. It means the soul moves. It moves from one location to another location. In an increasing way? In this case, it means, actually, that it extends everywhere. But Chulu Almin, more than it was before. The real English word is metastasizes, but it has negative connotations. Right, metastasizes, right. Yeah, metastasizes, but here in the positive sense, right. The Hine Yadua, to explain this, it's known... It's known that there are two dimensions. Chines means dimensions, aspects. When we speak about the general evolution of the worlds, what are these two chines? When we say hishtalshulus comes from the word shalshelus, as we discussed a few times. Shalshelus literally means a chain where one rung extends from another rung, lower and then lower and lower, and each rung is connected to the one above it, and as a result of that, the lowest rung and the highest rung are, of course, interlinked through all of the rungs in between. The metaphor, however, is far from perfect, because in a chain there's no qualitative difference between the rung on the top and the rung on the bottom. It's just mazel. (laughs) This rung happens to be on the top, this rung happens to be on the bottom, if you want to even call it bad mazel. I'm not sure that the rungs are too depressed about the hierarchy. When we speak about hishtal we of course mean an evolution where each rung represents a descent of energy that becomes more concrete, uh, more brute. So basically, each rung, the energy assumes an incarnation that is closer to the physical. So there's higher. Higher means it represents the divine more, and then it comes down lower and lower until this world. So he says, in the Hishtal in the evolution of the worlds, there's two pchines. And this is two pchines that exist everywhere. That's why he says it's in Klolosai Hishtal Shulos. means you're always going to find it. It's going to be everywhere. Now here we introduce to a concept which if I'm not mistaken we haven't had this yet in any of the Maimorim that we have learned from when this year began last year Purim time Chayavinish I think was our first Maimor that we learned I don't think that this concept was introduced in any of the Maimorim just like there are many concepts that you keep on seeing they're recurring themes because the Balatanya was a system man he was a man of systems so everything works in a system. Not everything, but a lot of things work in a system. This goes to the genre of Mamali and Soiviv or Atsilis and Bia, Gvul, Bligvul, Nefeshalikis, Nefeshabahamas, Guf, Neshama, etc. But here is a new concept which is known very well in the works of Kabbalah, in the works of the Ariza. This is a well known concept, but as usual in Kabbalah, these concepts are very, very coded, they're very cryptic as one could immediately see when they open up the works of Kabbalah. And here he's going to try to explain it in his own derech and style. These two dimensions are called Igulim and Yosher. 
They're also associated with the two dimensions called nefesh and ruach, soul and spirit. Now literally, igula means, from the word igul, igul is a circle. Igula means circles. Yosher comes from the word yasher, which means straight, like linear, linear lines. Igula is not yosher, igula is circles. Yosher from the word yasher would be like straight lines. What does this mean? That in the whole evolution of the world, you have igulim, you have circles, and you have straight lines, which are nefesh and ruach. Hahefresh b'neim, the difference between them, going to be now a long explanation with a long marshal, with a long metaphor. So let's read. When we speak about igulim, ha'oyres him klulim sham behiskalalus, bebchines helem, mebli hischalkos leprate prati is bebchines gilu. All of the lights, all of the iris, all of the energies are included there they are integrated in a concealed fashion without being divided into many details in a revealed way. Hence it's called Igulim. Why? Just like a circle is uniform and not divisible. You can't point to a ball, a circle, and say this is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the end. We were discussing Shvu as the international date line. One of the issues here is there's no point of the globe. You want to take out a globe, Moshe? <laughs> there's no point in the globe. Here, pass it down if you mind. don't mind. Pass the world, yes. That's a good thing. Let's try to change it to the better. There's no point, the sun, yeah? What we're experiencing is sunrise and sunset. But the problem in halacha is, where does the sun rise? And where does it set? In other words, where do you say the day starts? There's no point, I could say the sun rises. <laughs> the Japanese love saying that the sun rises first in Japan. That's why they're superior. From their perspective, it rises first in Japan. Because east to Japan, you have the North Pacific Ocean, nobody's living there. But I say the, 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 the sun rises here first. Why does it rise here first? Maybe it rises here first. Maybe it rises in Hawaii first, in New York first, in Los Angeles. Wherever you are, you could say, this is where it begins. And the point is, there's no beginning, there's no middle, there's no end. Every part of the ball could be considered a beginning and a middle and an end. And that's why we are forced, perhaps arbitrarily, that's the question, how Allah deals with it, to create an arbitrary line where we say, for our own convenience, this is the beginning. So you have an international dateline, and from there you say it's the beginning of day. And therefore, on one side is going to be one day, and the other side is going to be 24-hour difference. Simply because we have to create a beginning and an end. In every eagle, you don't have ischalkus. There's no essential division that is noticeable. What's the quality here that he's talking about? That the lights... All the iris are there behiskalalus, but they're still concealed, and therefore there's no hischal, because there's no division, and that's why it could be yigulim. Pchinis ha-yosher. Yosher is different. Kshemizgalim ha-iris. All the lights are revealed. Umizchalkim leprote proteus. Hence they become divided, not only into details, but into very specific details. Prote proteus means protim in the protim. Lias klulim yud. So you'll have, for example, each oyer encompasses ten. V'yud miyud. And then each one of them also encompasses ten. So from ten, you become, you get much more. So you'll have each oyer will not just be itself, but it'll be encompassing 
another nine dimensions. So mm-hmm. we'll have ten dimensions in it, like we have by Sphere Saimer. Chesed Shabachesed, Gurush Shabachesed, Tefer Shabachesed. And then, so you have Klulim Yud, you don't have one, you have ten. And then these ten also have Yud. So there's two dimensions. First of all, it's not one or there's ten. So the Ur is basically made up of ten dimensions, that's already specifics. And each one of those ten dimensions will also have within them the ten dimensions. So from ten you have basically a hundred. Yeah, that's why he's using ten because of the spheres. Hamashal Bazet to give a metaphor for this. The term Elah and Allah is a very frequent term, even though today it's not used so much in the vocabulary of learning. It's a very frequent term in the works of the Rambam and all of, the, of Jewish of his works of philosophy, not Yad Chazaka, and all of the works of Jewish philosophy. Elah basically is an antecedent. And Allul is what is what comes from the antecedent. Elah is the cause, and Allul is the effect of the cause, that which emerges from the cause. So whenever you have in the world an Elah and an Allul, and what doesn't have an Elah and an Allul? My mother is my Elah, I am the Allul. My child is the Allul of my Elah. So I am a child, but I'm also a father. So I'm both. I'm an Allul, I come from a previous place, and I become a source for something else. That's basically how our world functions. Every tree that you look at is an alul. There's an antecedent to the tree. There's a seed that grew this tree. But that seed itself came, say an apple tree, came from an apple. So that seed is an alul of the previous apple tree, which is, of course, an alul of yet the previous seed. But that seed is an ila and an alul. And that's how it goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, to the six days of creation, when the first elois were created physically. But then you have spiritual elois. So everything in the world is basically ilava alu. Tracing something back to its source means tracing the alu back to the ila. But then the source itself is a disciple, is, a, is an offspring. So you could take your family tree back to your great-great-grandmother. She is your ila, but of course she is only a child of somebody else who is her ila, etc. Whenever you have ila and alu, ha'ila makif is alu There is the concept of the ila still encompassing the alu, the mother's womb encompassing the child, so to speak, and kailalai, in containing it. Kailalai, which is from the word keli, from the word kailal, kailal. It encompasses it, it contains it. Tahainu kamayal derech mashal. Harav The metaphor of education, communication, and teaching is always a frequent metaphor in the Kodotayda with harav and Talmud. You have the Rebbe, the teacher, the master, who wants to communicate ideas, seichel to his student, his disciple. When the Rav wants to communicate seichel, which means ideas to the student, the prerequisite is that the teacher, who may be a brilliant genius, he must descend from his own space. He has to shrink, compress, limit his intellectual output to be ma'ayin in the kli of Asagas HaTalmud. He has to scrutinize. He has to delve into the keli of the Talmud. What is the capacity of the student's brain to understand what he wants to say? If he doesn't take time to delve into be ma'ayin, what type of container the student has the teaching will not be very successful or effective. 
and then he could communicate the idea according to the erech, according to the, the measurement, so to speak, the capacity of the student. If I'm pouring a liquid into a cup, the first thing I have to know is, I have to know the dimensions of the cup. Because how strong I'm going to pour. I could take the pitcher and just turn it over. If I have a huge pitcher. If I have a seven ounce cup, I turn over the pitcher and half of the water is gone. And the cup doesn't get full either. So with the student, it becomes even more than this. When you're talking about spiritual or intellectual communication, often the teacher is completely uh, clueless as to who his student is or her, her stu- or who her student is. So the first thing is he has to go out from his own space, figure out the space of the student, and then he could communicate an idea that fits and suits and can illuminate and enlighten and inspire and lift up and expand the intellectual horizons of the student. However, in the core of his own ideas, the Rebbe, he already contains the entire seichel, the entire idea that's going to go to the student from the beginning to the end. Even the flow that he gives the Talmud, which really is supposed to suit, it's supposed to take on the shape of his brains, the shape of his mind. In other words, the information has to suit the container. So he has to understand what type of intellectual container. Literally like an image, it's like a mold. If you have a certain mold, right, a certain shape, you have to fit into that mold if that's what you want to do. So you have to know the mold of your student. You have to understand the disposition, his intellectual disposition, the character of his seichel, and your hashpa has to fit that. If not, you're not really speaking to the person. So this is a very very challenging dimension in education because this is before you teach. This is not the teaching. This is all the homework you have to do before you teach. It's the prep work, but not just prep work to have a clear class and a clear message. Prep work of understanding who you're talking to. Most communication fails because nobody knows who they're talking to. (laughs) They're busy expressing themselves. They're not busy talking to another person. Talking to another person doesn't mean talking at them. It doesn't even mean talking to them. Here it says you have to talk in them. Don't talk to them. Talk in them. You want to pour the the fresh concrete into the mold that exists. And then slowly you may expand the mold, but at this moment it's not expanded yet. If you're not speaking on that level, it goes over my head. What do you mean it goes over my head, so to speak? It doesn't go into me because my kalim are not being dealt with. So therefore, the Rav must do this. But the Rav, before that, in his own seichel is koilo. Number one, the whole seichel of the Talmud. The capacity of the Talmud is in him. And also the Tzuris HaAshpa, which is B'Tzir V'Oifen Seichel Shalat Talmud, Harei Klula B'Seichel Shalat Rav. It's all contained in the Rav's mind. B'Skira Achas, with one scan, B'Lti Yishalkos L'Chalakim, not the visible. Not the visible. In other words, the entire sheer, practically speaking, that the Rav is going to give to this Talmud, is there in his mind? Is it there in a divisible, identified, differentiated way? No, it doesn't have to be. It's all part of his knowledge. It's all part of his ideas. When it comes out to the Talmud, it has to be specified. Before that, 
It's just included in his general knowledge. So the teacher who's teaching a five-year-old boy, olive base or Chumash, or Mishnayis, all that information that he's going to be communicating to the Talmud is there before. But it doesn't have a distinct identity. It's just part of the reservoir of knowledge and wisdom that exists in his mind. It's just all there. The Olul is in the Elah. The seed is still in the tree. It did not leave the tree, leave the fruit to become a source of a new tree. It's still all inside of him. The Olul is in the Elah. The Elah is still Makiv the Olul. Makiv the Olul. Sai the Seichel of the Talmud. And Sai the Hashpah that he gives to the Talmud, which is suitable to the Tzura of the Seichel. That's why he could give Hashpah. If he doesn't have that type of Seichel in him, he can't communicate with that type of Seichel. It would be like communicating with, uh, you know, uh, somebody from a different planet. Now he goes further. Oh, and then he mentions Beskira Achas with one scan. Let's start with one scan. Uh, one glance, exactly. It's not differentiated. In the Rav's mind, you don't say, ah, this part belongs to your student, this part belongs to you. It's all one entity, it's not divisible. Even after the communication, after the shear, in the beginning of the comprehension, he gives you a very graphic, a very graphic illustration. The mind of the student is mukaf; it's encircled, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. It's encompassed from the light of the seichel that the rav just gave him. The seichel surrounds him and envelops him. It's almost like his entire globe, his entire brain, is inside of the intellectual idea that the rav just communicated to him. It surrounds him from all sides. That oira seichel is oidif. That's from Parshas Truma. Oidif means it's, uh, it's, so to speak, extra, meaning it envelops him from all sides. It envelops the seichel of the Talmud and encompasses him from all sides. Overlaps. Huh? In circles. In circles, yeah. Yeah. It would be like his... Like when somebody is submerged in the mikveh, it's not just exact, right? There's extra water more than your body. So the whole body is now inside of the mikveh. So the entire mind of the Talmud, we're talking of real rabbi and a real student who are really connected. We're not talking about there's daydreaming going on in the middle of this year, or texting going on, or him sitting and waiting, you know, when is recess, when is going to be lunch. We're talking about a real, real communication which is based on a very powerful relationship, both intellectually and emotionally. So at this stage, right now, the mind of the Talmud, if he's a real Talmud, is lost, is enveloped, is submerged in the ideas coming from the Rebbe. Mamish, like, if you want to use a body of water, his mind, if the body of water is water, which the Rambam does say, that's what a mikvah is, the Rambam says, so it's actually a good metaphor, you have to be completely inside the mikvah. If part of your hand is sticking out, no, 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 it doesn't work. There's nothing but the water now. There's nothing but the seichel enveloping the mind of the student. And no, no part of him sticks out. It's oidif. Oidif means it's outside, it encircles him completely. But even it's in his Kabbalah, so he's only getting prati, pratios. You see, where do you ever see that hekei from the beginning of a relationship? He's going to explain. He's going to explain. 
explanation is, the student, in the beginning of the hashpa, in the beginning, he's just starting off. He's not getting the seichel to its full depth. It's impossible. It's just, it's being built. It's being built. It's the beginning of the Kabbalah. At the moment, what he's still getting is general principles. Built to his chalkos. Not with the full division. To be able to really comprehend all the parts of the idea and all of the logical ideas. Each idea contains separately a whole mansion with every piece of, with every item, with every piece of furniture, with every idea contained. Right now, it's the beginning. And because it's the beginning, so therefore, he's still getting the general thrust, the general perspective. It's not all worked out and figured out and sketched out and fleshed out. At this stage, you could say, the general idea of the student, of the teacher, encompasses the mind of the student in a state of makif, which means it encompasses it completely, or bilti his chalkos, it's not divisible. This is a metaphor to understand the Kabbalistic concept that there are ten spheroids and they're all circles. Omnam, omnam. Stage B, when the student will contemplate the flow of intellect and he'll get into its depth and he will comprehend it well, now the exact opposite is going to happen. What's the opposite? Adirabe means to the contrary. Adirabe, the other way around. Now, his mind encircles the ideas. Now the ideas are inside of him, rather him being inside of the idea. Stage one, the seichel of the Rebbe encompasses him, and his mind is basically submerged like in a mikveh in the seichel. Stage B, when the student actually comprehends and contemplates the full depth of the idea and really gets it, now it's the other way around. Now the idea of this teacher is submerged in his mind. His mind contains the idea. The idea doesn't contain him. He contains the idea. Because the flow of intellect enters into him like an internalized oil, meaning the energy is completely inside. It's like a hand in a glove. He becomes the glove. His mind becomes the glove. He becomes the container. First of all, he gets it well. There's no ambiguity. Plus, he gets all the aspects. There's a pyramid. He understands this nekudah, that nekudah. It's a house. A house is built of many different components coming together. All the chelke asvaras, this, this, this nekudah, that nekudah, that nekudah. Each one has its place. It's not any more general. This is a marshal for Esesphirus of Yosher, which is called an Arpnimi. And he finishes this Nekut. 
This is the association with that other title in Kabbalah. Igulim Nefesh, Yosheruach. Why? Shomailum Adregel Yoinim Abchinis Nefesh Abu'achakach. Ruach is a higher state than Nefesh and it follows Nefesh. It doesn't precede it. It's like two stages of intelligence. There's Meichin the Katnus, which is a more primitive form of awareness, and Meichin the Godless, which is an expansive, an expansive form of intelligence. Barnash, a human being. When he's born, he's given a Nefesh. As he expands in life, he opens himself up. Zacha doesn't only mean merit. The word schus means he becomes refined. Zakus. Shemen zach. Clear. He becomes cleared up. Zacha. Yavin leiruchi. Give him the ruchim. Meshachosu beitzchayim shari gulim v'yoshir anavgim. Beitzchayim from Narizal has a special portal called the portal of igulim and yoshir. Branch three. Where he discusses this to nefesh and the ruch. What's the mashal that the Balatanya is teaching us here? What is the metaphor between the Rav and the Talmud? The two stages, Igulim and Yosher. When the student is sitting by the shear of this Rebbe, this Rav we're assuming here in this metaphor is an absolute uh, incredible genius and an incredible teacher, which is why the student is sitting eagerly at the class. He's not sitting wiggling, you know, <laughs> his fingers, looking what to do. And that has to be dismissed from the metaphor. So all, many of your experiences in yeshiva, please don't bring them into this, uh, to this classroom, because I know not everybody's experience is exactly this. Here you're dealing with a student who feels that it's a privilege to sit at the feet of this master, because the information that's being communicated is priceless. It's extraordinary. Huh? <laughs> and it's not going to happen again. What happens that day is not going to happen again. Because the teacher is not going to be in the same state. So he sits, there's an eagerness, emotional eagerness, but an intellectual eagerness. And it's new material. So now what are the stages? So the Balatanya says a normal stage of teaching communication is, from the teacher's perspective, before he starts, he has to completely focus in on the student. From the student's perspective, he has to completely focus in on the teacher. If the teachers, if each one is talking about is thinking about themselves, it's not going to work. The teacher has to be thinking about the student, and the student has to be thinking about the teacher. If the teacher is thinking about he, his desire to express himself, that's not a teacher. He's a great guy, but he's not a rap. If the Talmud is thinking about his own understanding rather than complete dedication to listen to the ideas that transcend him, he won't be able to receive new ideas. So each bond, everybody has to go out of their own zone in order to be able to experience this relationship. There's a beautiful uh, vart from the Panem Yafis. The Panem Yafis was a chaver of the Balatanya. His name was Repinchas Halevi Horowitz. He wrote a sefer, Hafla Mesechtek Suvis, very well-known yeshivish, a sefer, Hamakna Mesechtek Kedushin. He wrote a lot of svarim. On Chumash, he has a sefer, Panem Yafis. Hafla is an acronym, Harav Pinchas Levi Ish Horowitz, Hafla. And he was a gon, a very big gon. He was a brother of Reb Shmelka of Niklisburg. It was two brothers, Reb Pinchas Horowitz and Reb Shmelka of Niklisburg, who was the rabbi of Frankfurt, Frankfurt in Germany. So uh, in his Sefer Panam Yafis, I think in his Akdam I saw it, in his introduction to Panam Yafis, he says a vart that uh, the Gemara says in Maseches Chagiga 
the Pasuk says in Malachi, Kisif Sekoyen Yifshmurudas, Torah Yavakshu Mipiyu, Kimalach Hashem Tzvakesu. You should learn Torah from your teacher because he's an angel. So the Gemara says, if your Rav is like a Malach, learn from him. If he's not like a Malach, don't learn from him. Ask the Panam Yavis. We're going to find the Rebbe who's a Malach. Yeah? There was once a woman telling another woman, she says, ah, my husband, how lucky I am, he's a Malach. And the other one starts crying, she says, I know what you mean, mine is also not a mensch. So, <laughs> if, we're not, if we're looking for not a mensch, then you could probably find, I don't know how many, but you could find. But if you're looking for, where are you going to find the Malach? So the Panam Yafis says, Avart, something special, about Chinuch. There's a Pasuk in Scharia, it's after of Hanukkah. I will make you a mahalich, a mover among these who stand. So Chazal explained in many svarim, malachim are called oimdim, neshamas are called mahalchim. Angels stand, souls move, because angels basically follow their own orbit. There's no uh, tremendous cataclysmic quantum growth. There is gradual growth. On the Shama down here, as we learned before, with there's quantum leaps. There's this tremendous, so it's called a mahalach, a mover. A malach is an oimid. Malach doesn't fall, he doesn't grow. He doesn't end up in the abyss, and that's it. That's a malach. Zag de Gemara, you want to know what type of rav to learn by? A malach Hashem Tzvakis. Why? A teacher is teaching you. He taught Baba Basra already 15 years. Before the first day of yeshiva, he doesn't even look at it. He already did it 15 years, and he basically repeats himself. Often. Yeah. But a farav is a real rav. He's a creative person. He gets frustrated. He wants to teach new things for himself. He wants to, he wants to be excited about his own classes. So what does he do? He's sitting with a bunch of students. He's not going to go down to their level. He wants to express himself. So therefore he teaches ideas that get him excited. Because he wants to move. He wants to grow. So he says, no, 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 no. You want a Rav who's a Malach. A Malach is somebody who's ready to be an Oymid. He's ready to remain in his own position, not grow tremendously for the sake of the student. So even though he learned this Mishnah a hundred times, so now he's going to sit and lower himself down to the Madrega of the Talmud. He doesn't want to. He wants to say Chidushim. So he says, the Rav has to be doimel amalech Hashem tzvokis. He's ready to be an oimid, not a mahalach. In other words, accommodate the mindset of his student, even though that means he has to remain uh, uh, an oimid. Re- relatively static. It's more station. Now the truth is, as a result of that, he'll experience more growth on another dimension. But mitzad, the communication, this is a nisoyen that a lot of Rebbes have, a lot of Rosh Hashivas have. He's talking to a classroom. He doesn't want to stop. He wants to discuss the Geshmaka Reb Chaim. He wants to delve into a Marach of Reb Kiveger. He wants to reconcile two Rambams based on a Ktsos. But the boys don't understand the Mishnah. The boys don't know how to read a Rashi. The main thing is they're sitting and hearing Pilpulim on Pilpulim. This happens in a lot of yeshivas. And you come out, you say, but what's the base? He doesn't know how to read the Gemara. He doesn't understand the basics. He doesn't know the Mishnah. He doesn't know the Pasuk Chumash on which the Mishnah is based. The main thing is, he heard a stidus between two Rambams, the Kesef Mishnah, the Magad Mishnah, the Kiv Eges, Shailur, Chaim, Stadus. Again, 
it looks good, but it's ridiculous. It's it's not a way of learning. It's frustrating for everybody. There's no growth there. So the Rav has to be doyma l'malach Hashem Tzvokas. In the Lashon here of the Balatanya, he has to make a tzimtzum, he has to go into the seichel of his Talmud. From his perspective. Now let's speak from the Talmud's perspective. If the Talmud sits like this, I don't mean if anybody's sitting like this, you could continue. But it's usually how Jews sit, right? What are you going to tell me? Huh? Huh? Somebody said, fine, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm looking at a Moshe. Huh? Uh uh. Lenny is a different Pchina. Okay, much better. So, if he's sitting there, let's see if you could tell me something. He doesn't have that dedication, then it's not going to work. The Talmud has to go out of himself and be completely focused to hear the Seichel of the Rav. That's what he has to do. And not try to fit it into his paradigms, but on the contrary, to open himself up to what is being communicated. To what is being communicated. For this he has to trust that there is something worthwhile here to do. He has to trust the text, he has to trust the information, has to trust his rep. Now when this happens, there's two stages. Mitzad Rav, all the seichel of the Talmud, everything that was there, that's going to be communicated to the Talmud, is all contained in the Rav's mind. But when it's in his mind, it's not differentiated. It's just part of his mind. In order to communicate it, he has to focus in on it and suit the information to the student. Where was all that information? It was all part of it. It was just in the whole reservoir of ideas. It was included. It was all a klal. It wasn't divisible. But now he has to identify it, zoom into it, and accentuate it and access it in order to give it to the student. Now, when he's already starting to give it to the student... There's also two stages. Just like by the Rav himself, there were two stages. Stage number one was Klaal. Stage number two was Prat. Stage number one is the way it's in himself, where it's just one big cholent. Stage number two is you want to give a shear. Tune into your audience. You have to know your audience. There's no teaching if you don't know your audience. One of the biggest mistakes that teachers, speakers, communicators make is they don't know who they're talking to. You have to understand who you're talking to. Their mental space, their limitations their challenges, their sensitivities, their intellectual capacity. That's before even you begin your, begin preparing your shear. That's the backdrop. That's who I'm talking to. Now what am I going to say? <laughs> I know who I'm talking to. Now what am I going to say? What am I going to say that works for these people, that works for these children? You see it sometimes with teenagers. You know, you're talking to teenagers, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. Today teenagers are already 6 years old. But uh, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and they're just yawning. You know when they start yawning on you? It's like... It's not that they disagree, it's just irrelevant. You ever have that experience? Yeah. <laughs> you see how his face lit up? Finally, you heard something, you heard something that resonates, right? Yeah. Finally, at least, you see, I, it took me a long time to get into that space, but I did it. <laughs> I had to remember when I was 12 years old, sitting in a classroom at 7.43 in the morning, voluntarily, what that felt like. Wow, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, you know that yawn? What's that? You, the yawn is like, you don't even, huh? The yawn is saying, I'm tired, get it over with. Yes. <laughs> I'm not even giving you the dignity of arguing with you. It's just irrelevant. <laughs> Mainly, if a person is getting angry, at least he's getting angry at you. I'm not angry at you, I'm just yawning. 
You're not saying anything. You're not provoking me. You're not intriguing me. So, why? Because I'm not in his world. And then sometimes you start describing his world and everybody starts smiling. Against their own will. They don't even want to. But whenever you hear somebody describing your own world, right? It becomes a different situation. I know sometimes I'll give a sheer, some of you know this, I'll speak and speak and speak, you're yawning, you're not yawning. And then I say, let's give an example from marriage. <laughs> and suddenly, I give the example, and there's 20 new people who just had Chiyas HaMesim. Why? Because it happened last night in the kitchen, right? Uh, last night it happened. It didn't happen a year ago. It happened last night. Or she may be texting as I'm talking, you know, what, what's happening right now. They say there was once an AT&T salesman who came to a particular house, you know, with his new uh, concoction, and he, he rings the bell, and the guy comes out, and the AT&T salesman says, you know, I came here, I have this wonderful service, but I have to speak to the master of the home. Who is the master of the home? The guy says, oh, you came on the right time, wait up five minutes, because that question is being decided right now in the kitchen. <laughs> in five minutes, I'll be able to answer it to you. What's the issue? The issue is, resonates. It resonates, it's part of my world. Okay, now there's part of my world intellectually, there's part of my world emotionally. That's already different pechines, that's already different madregas. How much part of my world is it? Am I really going down to the person's emotional level or intellectual level? Okay, that's all different madregas in that itself. But let's understand the Nakuda here. So that's all in the teacher's preparations. There's a state where everything is one, and then there's differentiation. Now, so there's klal and prat in the teacher. There's the teacher being in his own mode, and then there's the teacher identifying the student within himself and making already a picture of that student in his own mind, understanding his mindset, understanding his kalim, and communicating it on that level. And as he says, Mamish has to fit the mold of the student. Now there is communication itself. Here again you have two stages. So if you realize, he discusses really four stages, two in the Rav, Shtayim Shein Arba. Two in the Rav and two in the student. In the student himself, there's stage one and stage two. Stage one in the student, he hasn't figured it out yet. Because he hasn't figured it out yet, all he has to do is focus, focus, focus. You can't think about yourself. All you could think is about the ideas. Where is your mind? Your mind is literally submerged in the idea. All you could feel, if somebody would be able to give a physical illustration of it is... The Rav's ideas are enveloping my entire brain. The brain is not even sticking out. You know, my entire brain is, so to speak, bottled, it's submerged, it's in a mamish in a mikvah. There's nothing else. There's just trying to figure out the idea. Why? Because I haven't yet grasped it. It's still more nebulous. I'm, get, I'm getting it, but I didn't get it. I'm getting it. And in order to get it, I have to be completely in it. And what do I have right now? I have now the thrust, the mahalach, the perspective, the klal. It's not yet, it's like the blueprint of a building relative to the building itself. In the blueprint, you have the whole building. But what do you have? You have ten lines. <laughs> you have ten lines, that's right. And then you have the building itself. You don't have ten lines anymore. You have millions and millions of details. So there is the final product after the shear. And not after the shir, a day later, a week later, the Talmud sat down, reviewed his notes, made chazara, thought about it 20 times. Ah, I get it. I get it. What happens now? 
The seichel is inside of him. He becomes the container. In the beginning, the, the, the seichel of the Rav contains him. It carries him. He has to allow himself to be carried by the idea. At a later stage, he becomes the container, the keli, where the idea fits in because he's absorbed in him, and became part of him. And he gets it as a klal, the way it once was in the Rebbe, as a klal also? Or he gets it within him only as pratim? That's a later stage. At this point, it's only pratim. At this point, it's only pratim because it was suited to his capacity. But even when it was suited to his capacity... You don't get it like this, because the Rav is challenging him. He's not giving him information from a cereal box, you know, uh, or the sports section of the newspaper. He's challenging him on his capacity. So therefore, in the beginning, what he gets is a klal. What's a klal? It's like, it's like when somebody's telling you something very new and very deep, like you're hanging on to every word, you're starting to get it, you see where the man is going, you get a general idea, you can't afford to get into details and division. Right now it's collective, Later, you're going to be. You, later, you have to get it into Pratim. You have to get into Pratim. Yes. 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 Huh? First cloud. If he starts, I'll tell you. <laughs> to the Santa. When I was a bacherol, a bacherol, so I had the privilege for a few years to be one of the people who memorized and transcribed the talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on Shabbos and Yom Tov. And it was a very, very challenging task. There was, of course, no tape recorder. And the Rebbe would not speak for five minutes. This wasn't a tish with a vertel. He could speak for three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours. And uh, not with many interruptions. I mean, there was a niggin here, a niggin there for a few minutes, but he would go on. And the discussions were not superficial discussions. They were extremely, extremely profound. And, they, uh, and the Rebbe wasn't a storyteller or a joke teller. So if it was an hour talk, it was an hour talk. It was meat and potato. And he also gleaned from the whole mosaic of, of Torah. So you would have Halacha and Nigla and Kabbalah and Rambam and Rashi and Chsidis and current events and issues going on in Israel and issues going on with the Jewish community. Abstract issues and practical issues. Avoida and Haskola, Sugis and Shas and Poiskim and Nigla and Chkiris. was very, uh, very, very intense. And uh, there were no Mari Mekoymas before to prepare, you know, a Shia you could prepare before. It was all like it came out. And it was one talk after another talk after another talk after another talk. So it was a very, cha- very, very challenging task. Till today, Mitzayi Shabbos, I get, uh, when Shabbos ends, my body still responds to the pressure of those days. Yeah. I didn't want to use that word, but Mervenik, uh, yeah. So uh, it all had to be, literally all had to be memorized. All had to be memorized. And the Rebbe sometimes spoke very brief. Like he would say a word next. Boom, boom, boom. It wasn't always he said. Sometimes he elaborated, but often. I remember once, I had a lesson in memory. The Rebbe was talking. And he asked a question. A very strong question. And he gave a beautiful, beautiful answer. Magnificent answer. 
And as he gave the answer, I had to stop and tell myself, this is Givaldic. Like I was complimenting him in my mind. You know when you say, this is excellent. You know, people always, this is great, you know. A lot of people is I'm going to use this, but it wasn't that. But it was like, this is great, this is great. And I was telling myself why it's great. Just in my mind, I was allowing myself the pleasure of understanding it and analyzing it. And what happened was, is that talk I could not retain. I lost it. I lost it. Why did I lose it? Because I was focused on my experience of it, not on the words being said. And then I learned, my brother taught this to me, he used to do it, and others, that in order to retain it, the first principle is, it's a little counterintuitive, is when you're listening, you cannot be present. There's nothing that exists outside of the ideas that are being communicated. Not even your understanding of it. Because the moment you come in and you're understanding it, you're going to lose it. What has to exist is nothing but the experience, the words themselves. In that case, the Rebbe is talking, there's nothing else. I don't understand, I don't hear, I don't retain, I know nothing. I'm just glued. Literally, you're glued. You can't even be there. Only then can you be there. Why? Because since these are very new ideas, and challenging ideas, and intriguing ideas, the first thing that has to happen to the Talmud is, he completely cannot be present. If he is, what happens is, the ideas automatically will not stay with him, because they are conforming. He's imposing his experience. I was imposing my excitement and experience on it. And as a result of that, ultimately I couldn't retain it. When he's talking, there's nothing. Just the words. But you can't remain that way. <laughs> if it remains that way, then there's nothing. <laughs> and unfortunately, the experience is not going to continue. At some point, you have to memorize it, you have to write it down, you have to teach it, you have to communicate it. That's sta- but that's only stage B. After everything, now you're like, <sighs> you come out, and now like, now let me introduce myself into the process, let me internalize the ideas. So stage B to stage A, the Talmud is not existing. The whole brain and mind of the student is inside the Seichel Araf. Enveloped from every tzad, literally like a mikveh. If there's one strand of hair sticking out, it's possible. It's not going to work. You're all, you have to be completely contained in it. There's nothing outside of it. In other words, you're not present. You are flat. You are completely open. There's no intellectual ego. So you allow yourself to contain it. Stage B, now you have to internalize it. Ultimately, you're not remaining flat for your whole life. You have a mind, you have a brain, and you have to make it part. So now, you have to go back and start going into the words. In that itself, there's many stages. Analyzing it, dissecting it. This is going to the oymik. You have to be zechmes boinen. What happens at the end? At the end, the ideas are now in you. You contain them rather than they contain you. And now there's a lot of division. There's a structure, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's a question, there's an answer, there's a question on the answer, there's an answer on the question, there's a proof, there's a rejection, there's elaboration, there's another proof, there's an illustration, etc., etc. There's the basement, there are the foundations, there's the basement, there's the first floor, there's the second floor, there's the attic, right? 
It's all, that's what Seichel is. Seichel is basically a mansion of ideas. That's stage B in the Talmud himself. As we shall see, this is his marshal for the two stages of communication, Kevayachol, from the ultimate teacher to the ultimate student, from Hashem to the world, basically called Igulim and Yosh. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.